Well, here at CBC, we are in line with saints throughout the centuries when we talk about the gospel and what the gospel message is. We always want to be really clear about it, that at the heart of the gospel is the perfect life of Jesus Christ, fulfilling the law in every conceivable way, in the place of sinners, and that perfect life, that perfect righteousness of Christ is to be received by faith. We also want to be clear that at the heart of the gospel is the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he took our law-breaking, our sin upon himself, and he paid the penalty that it deserves. So he paid the sin debt, he paid the penalty that sinners deserve, in particular, on the cross. He purchased us with his blood, is the language of Scripture. And at the heart of the gospel message also is the triumphant resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, in which the sacrifice that he made was validated, in which, in his resurrection, it was a demonstration of his victory over death, his victory over sin, and his victory even over Satan. Satan was dealt a mortal blow, not only on the cross, but when Jesus got up on a Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. Also, a part of that gospel message is the fact that Jesus, he remained on earth for a period of days, but then he ascended to heaven. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He reigns now. He intercedes for his own. He prays for you and me, if you're trusting in him. And he's coming back. He's coming back to get his people. That what Jesus has accomplished and is yet to accomplish in terms of his return. It's as good as done, but it's going to happen at a future point in time. That is the heart of the gospel message. It is appropriate in that sense to say that Jesus is the gospel. He has accomplished the work of redemption. God's plan of redemption accomplished by the Son of God, Jesus Christ, applied by the Holy Spirit of God, to sinners, all to the praise and glory of God. It's the gospel. It's the plan of redemption. The work of Jesus is credited to us completely through faith. Completely. So that perfect life, that atoning death, that triumphant resurrection, all of the merits of Christ are counted to you and me completely by faith. That is the good news of Scripture. And because of that counting of the merits of Christ, the righteousness of Christ to you and me. And because of Christ paying our penalty in our place, we are promised that God is good with us and that we are good with him. And so, that gospel that I've just outlined clearly is not understood by the world. The world at large does not understand that gospel, does not love that gospel. That's clear. But even in the church, even in the church, and I'm talking broadly now, that gospel that I just articulated, in particular that piece where all of that, your salvation, your standing before God is grounded completely in the work of Christ to be received completely by faith, that gospel, even in the church, can make people nervous sometimes. So here's the thing. We're gathering this morning to worship the one true God. 
The title of the sermon, if you've looked in your bulletin, it might have even been on the screen, I don't know, is called True and False Religion. Anything other than that gospel that I have just articulated from Scripture is false religion. Anything other than that gospel is false religion. And so as you sit here this morning and you're reflecting on how do I understand the gospel, what do I believe about how a sinner is reconciled to holy God? What do I believe about that reality? As you're wrestling with that in your mind, ask yourself, is your religion true religion? Is our religion here at CBC true religion? And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be looking today primarily at Galatians 4, verses 8 through 20. And give you just a moment to flip there. For those who are newer with us, just a very brief flyover. Paul is writing this letter to churches situated in modern-day Turkey, but to a group of churches in that day in a region of the world known as Galatia. And he's writing because there has been a question that's arisen over how a person is declared righteous before God. Is it by faith in Jesus Christ, full stop, or is it by faith in Jesus Christ plus works of the law? Is it by faith in Jesus Christ plus circumcision? And so Paul has been contending for over three chapters now that the gospel message, the way that a sinner is reconciled to God, declared righteous before God, is completely by faith in Christ apart from works. And he's been arguing most recently in chapter 3 from a redemptive historical perspective that is considered the example of Abraham most especially and how Abraham's faith was counted to, to him as righteousness and how the promise that God made to Abraham to bless him that was received by faith in no way was annulled by the giving of the law to Moses 430 years later. Paul has argued that the promise of God is greater than the law. The promise of God and the law are not on the same plane. The promise predates the law, and the promise is greater than the law. And we are saved. We inherit the kingdom of God by promise, not by law. And so last week we considered how when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to accomplish the law and to pay our debt that we owe because we are lawbreakers. And through Christ, simply by faith in Him, we are adopted legitimately into the family of God. And so now we find ourselves in verse 8 of chapter 4. Now that you've had time to flip and we've oriented ourselves in the text, I'm going to read the Word of God for us. Galatians 4, beginning in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God 
as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. I have three points for our consideration today. I'm going to give them to you one at a time as we make our way through the passage. Point number one, Paul's astonishment. Point number one, Paul's astonishment. We're going to be looking primarily at verses 8 through 10 for just the next few moments. If you'll put your eyes on verse 8, you see there, just as I do, that Paul talks about a former time in the life of these Galatian believers when they did not know God. They were not yet Christians. They were enslaved to those that were, by nature, not gods. That just means that they were enslaved to false gods. Service to idols and the worship of idols would be in view here. These people were pagan people. They would have been practitioners of idolatry. They were worshiping idols that by nature were not gods. And then we see in verse 9, Paul says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, I want to just briefly draw our attention to those words, though I've unpacked that more at other times, Paul continues to paint these small, beautiful pictures of conversion. He's like, now that you've come to know God, or hang on a minute, let me say that more precisely. Now that God has come to know you savingly, God is the one who is decisive. He is the one who has acted decisively in this salvation equation. People have become Christians in Galatia because God has set his love and affection on them because he knows them intimately. And so Paul says, now that that's happened, now that you have become known by God and you know him, how then could you turn back again? You see it there, to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. So Paul is expressing astonishment that these Galatian Christians would return to their former ways. Just kind of keep that in mind for a moment. They would return to their former ways of what exactly? So he says that they would return to worthless elementary principles of the world. And remember, as we considered last week, we saw similar language in verse 3 of chapter 4. And we considered how wrapped up in that phrase, in that terminology, the worthless elementary principles of the world, certainly sin, the power of sin is considered there. It's an elemental force in the world. But also, we talked about how that would incorporate within it spiritual forces of darkness, namely Satan. Demonic activity is an elemental spiritual force in this fallen world. So Paul's talking about returning to something that has components. It's sin and the power of sin and returning to something that is demonic. It is dark, satanic even. Okay, that's strong. Think with me for just a moment about the way idolatry is portrayed, though, in the Old Testament. It's always portrayed as demonic. The Bible will even talk about the gods of the nations and things of this nature. 
and how it's so clearly from hell and how there's oftentimes real power exercised even by the gods of the nations that we would trust as demonic activity. This is the picture that's painted in the Old Testament. And we know even in the New Testament, in Ephesians 2, Paul says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul identifies Satan as the god of this world. So this is what, in one sense, the Galatians would be returning to. Bondage. They would be returning to slavery and bondage to sin and in bondage to Satan. And if that isn't provocative enough, they would be returning again to false religion. They would be returning again to essentially paganism. But the shocking piece of this is that if you understand the context of the letter and what Paul is writing about, this return to false religion, this return to essentially pagan, false worship, would take the form of the Mosaic Law. That's scandalous to say. And I feel amped up even saying it. I'm like, ah, and I've prepared this in advance. Paul is comparing a return to the Mosaic Law to paganism. That's what he's saying. If you revert back to your old ways, when you were idol worshipers and false worshipers, you're doing that through the Mosaic Law. That is scandalous. Let me say it another couple of ways, just to try to help us wrap our minds around this. Because you see this like I do. The context of the letter has nothing to do with paganism. The context of the letter has everything to do with the law of Moses and its role in justification. Adherence to the Mosaic law as the means of attaining righteousness in any measure is what Paul is talking about. He's not saying that the law is bad. He's already said the law is good. We've talked about throughout this letter how the law is good. So it's not that the law in and of itself is bad. But it's that they would be returning to the law, at least in measure, as a means of attaining righteousness, which Paul says is false religion. I'm going to put it yet another way. I want to be crystal clear. Before their conversion, talking about the Galatian Christians, before their conversion, the Galatians were enslaved to false gods. And yet Paul sees their attraction to Judaism as equivalent to paganism. Paul sees their attraction to Judaism as equivalent to paganism and false religion. So in doing this, in returning to the Mosaic Law as a means of attaining righteousness, the Galatians would be trading freedom for slavery. They would be trading liberty for bondage. This is why Paul is astonished. Why are you doing this? It is totally irrational, and it's totally inexplicable that they would do this. Now put your eyes on verse 10. Just keep tracking with me. When Paul says there that you observe days and months and seasons and years, he's astonished by that. What's he talking about? Again, think about the context of the letter. He's writing about the observance of the law, circumcision, feasts, traditions. He's not talking about pagan things in that verse. In verse 10, he has in view the Jewish calendar. He has in view the Sabbaths and the new moons and the feasts and those things. You're observing these things. 
And he says that with astonishment. See, these observances of days and seasons and feasts and all the rest would have been pressed by these false teachers in Galatia. Along with law-keeping and circumcision as a part of all that, underneath the umbrella of the law, it's like, all right, now we're going to observe these days and these seasons and these feasts. And they would have been pressed as necessary for true worship. That's the issue, right? These days and these feasts and these observances would have been pressed as necessary for true worship. Remember how this, this goes, right? It's more nuanced than to just say, well, the law is bad and that feasts are bad and all that kind of stuff. That's not necessarily true. But it's how are you talking about them? How are you considering them? What is necessary for righteousness is the key question. And when law-keeping or circumcision or the observance of days or feasts, Sabbaths, new moons, whatever, were pressed as necessary for righteousness, we have a problem. That is running smack into the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So, just to be very clear, it's fine. Paul says this elsewhere in other writings in the New Testament in his own letters. It's fine that you would observe holidays. It's fine that you would observe feasts. It's fine that you would observe Sabbaths and things of that nature. But the issue is not to bind people's consciences over those things. The issue is to not require those things for righteousness. Paul will even talk about things that are observed, holidays that are observed, feasts that are observed or not. He'll talk about that even in Romans and other places and being gracious towards our weaker brothers. So clearly he's not saying that you can't ever observe this. The question is, how are you observing it? Just as a kind of brief aside on this, this is one of the reasons, verses like Galatians 4.10, are one of the reasons why your elders do not lead our church to just robustly follow the liturgical church calendar. You may have noticed that, that we don't make a huge deal about, I mean, we have a, a Christmas Eve service, we have a Good Friday service, I preached a resurrection sermon on Easter morning, and we've preached incarnation sermons on Christmas, and at the same time, we don't make a huge deal out of things like Advent. We have just kept preaching through sermon series in the brief history of our church's life, too, on Easter and Christmas for these reasons. Those holidays, on the one hand, are arbitrary, right, in the church calendar. They are. The dates are debatable, all of that. And what we say, here's the kicker, here's the thing. What I want you to feel every single Sunday is that we are celebrating at the top of our lungs, like tiptoe happy celebrating the incarnation and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Christians do. And that's why in the New Testament you see the pattern. Christians get together on the first day of the week for worship. Why? Because Jesus got up from the dead on Sunday. The first day of the week, by the way. Our calendar in America doesn't serve us well in thinking about what Sunday. Sunday is the first day of the week. We tend to think of Monday like that. So that's why we do what we do here. Right? It's wonderful to celebrate Easter and Christmas. That's great. But we're never going to bind anybody's consciences about your Easter or Christmas tradition. I don't think it's any more significant to be at church on Easter Sunday than it is today. And I can stand on Scripture to say that. Every Lord's Day matters. Just a, a brief word on that. 
So Paul, friends, kind of draw point one to a close. Paul is astonished that the Galatians are turning from the grace of Christ to the law of Moses as the way of salvation, right? We're turning from the grace of Christ to the law of Moses as the way of salvation. How and why are you doing that? Have you lost your senses? Yes, they have. So now that moves us into point number two. Because these Galatian believers have lost their senses, Paul is going to warn them. So point number two is Paul's warning. Paul's warning. Point one was Paul's astonishment. Point two, Paul's warning. And we will look at verse 11. These words are quite strong. We're looking at one verse for point number two. You can read it along with me. I'll read it again. He says, after he's expressed astonishment at what they're doing, what they're believing and observing, verse 11, I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. They're strong words. He's using this very strong language, this language of warning to try to wake these believers up from their stupor. It's like, you have temporarily lost your minds and I am trying to bring you back to the truth and bring you back to reality. That's why he is calling their conversion even into question. He's saying, I'm afraid I've labored in vain. It appears that you're Christians, but I don't know with what you're saying. Clearly, he doesn't think they're unconverted. Track with me because of what he says in verse 9. You've come to know God. God's come to know you. It's not like you're not a believer, but I'm talking to you in these terms because you have lost your senses and you are denying the gospel. The observance of the law is necessary for righteousness, compromises the gospel, and it makes the grace of Christ void. Paul is going to say that in the first few verses of chapter 5. If you want to keep, you can go ahead, we'll just jump ahead. This is like a preview of things to come. Chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, that's just one tradition, that's one aspect of the law. If you accept that, Christ will be of no advantage to you. None. Verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Law keeping is an all or nothing arrangement. There is no middle ground whatsoever. You want to keep any of it, you better keep all of it. Or you are damned. You are done. Either Christ did it or you do it. That's the decision that you have to make. And when you want to contend for your piece of law keeping or circumcision or feasts or Sabbaths or whatever, the gospel itself is at stake. If that kind of doctrine that we need to be circumcised for righteousness, or we need to observe these days for righteousness, or we must keep this aspect of the law for righteousness. If that kind of doctrine is accepted by a Christian or by a church, then Jesus is of no use to us, to them. And we would stand condemned. This is deadly serious. That's why Paul uses language that's very serious. It's severe even. I might have wasted my time in preaching the gospel to you. I might have wasted my time in planting churches in Galatia because you guys are denying Christ. So just a brief brief word for us too now concerning warnings and strong language in Scripture. You're going to read the New Testament and you're going to find them there. Warnings, language like this that's really strong. And sometimes people are knocked around a little bit by that kind of warning language. Like, what do I make of this? 
Do I need to be afraid that my salvation's in jeopardy? Is that what's going on? The answer to that question in short is no. But I want to talk with you about the way warnings are used even in the New Testament, in particular by the Apostle Paul, because we're in a Pauline letter. So I've talked before about circumstances where severe communication is required even in the church. And when I say in the church, just to be really clear, severe language, language of warning in the church, I'm talking about we're dealing with professing Christians, we're dealing with people who are members of the church, and we would obviously have a very different posture with our unbelieving family and friends and coworkers. We're not talking about unbelievers. There's a different kind of warning and a different kind of winsome pleading and a different kind of gospel presentation kind of that we might make there. Though I would argue that we preach the gospel to each other all the time. So, one scenario in the church where strong language is necessary is when we have a brother or sister denying the sinfulness of sin. If you have a, a person, a member of the church, who's engaging in something that, that the Bible clearly calls sin, but they don't want to call it that. They're saying, it's okay. It's fine. It's permissible. That's when we want to say, brother or sister, you need to wake up. What you're doing is not all right. God has been very clear about it. I don't care what you think. I don't care if you think it's sin or not. The Bible says so. You need to align your, your mind, your thinking with Scripture here. You need to come back to your senses here. That's one scenario. Another scenario, perhaps even more frightening, is when a brother or sister, member of the church, is engaged in sin, is happy to call it sin, and says, yeah, I just don't care. I'm sinning, I know I'm sinning, don't care. Or, I'm sinning and I know I'm sinning, I know it's bad, but I'd rather do the sin. When they're talking like that, living like that, that's a time for strong language. Brother, sister, you need to wake up. What you're doing is going to ruin you in this life and the life to come. Stop. But then there's a third scenario. A third scenario in the church when language of warning is necessary and strong language is necessary and it's the circumstance of this letter. And that's when a brother or a sister takes a doctrinal position, a position of doctrine, right, truth, that denies the grace of Christ and the gospel. If a member of the church takes a position that denies the grace of Christ and the gospel, strong language is necessary. Warning is necessary. And so when this happens, when the gospel is compromised willingly by members of the church, we must be very direct and very clear in confronting it. This is why one of the ways we guard the gospel is just be really, really clear about it every single Sunday. Like, if you don't like the gospel that we're preaching from Scripture, I want you to know you don't like it because it hits you in the face every single Sunday morning, right? Like, if, you, if you're wanting to kind of cling to something that you can do, you've got to go somewhere else. You've got you to find another religion, I would argue. you certainly got to find another church if you think that you contribute to this salvation equation. God saves sinners. And so, as we see this pattern of the Apostle Paul especially, we see him writing letters to churches in the New Testament. Paul's letters, you realize this, they are written to particular groups of people, all of them, from Romans on through. They're written to particular groups of people. Many of those people are members of churches that Paul would have started. Some of those people he doesn't know personally, but he has knowledge of them. So he's writing into a situation where he is generally acquainted with what's going on. And you find that when he writes to these particular groups of people of whom he has knowledge, there are a couple of scenarios when he uses strong language. 
warning language. The first is when the grace of Christ and the gospel are denied, like in Galatians and other places where he's clearing that up, defending the truth of the gospel. But then, the other, the other time that he uses strong language is when there is sin going on in the church and the church is condoning it. Think with me, right? When the church is condoning sin, the church is cool with sin, the church is not calling sin, sin, the church is not correcting sin. That's what Paul gets worked up over. Paul does not get worked up over genuine believers genuinely struggling with sin in their lives. He does not get worked up over that. He is compassionate and pastoral about that. He writes very movingly and honestly about the struggle of the believer. He comforts the struggling believer. But when the church is corporately losing its mind and not correcting sin and it is condoning sin or even celebrating sin, think 1 Corinthians 5, right? There's a man sleeping with his stepmother and Paul says, you think this is okay. You're even saying this is good and even pagan people know this is bad. What are you doing? That's an example. The disunity all throughout 1 Corinthians, the Lord's Supper issue. My goodness, 1 Corinthians 11, the reason people were dying and getting sick is because you had people who had the means and the time and the flexibility to come early to the supper and they're drinking all the wine and eating all the food and there's not anything left for the rest of the congregation. It's like, this is wicked, man. What are you guys doing? That's when Paul gets worked up. He writes with strong language and he warns because sin is happening and the church is cool with it. And so, we have in Galatia more so. He's going to talk more about, about living in, a, in the next few couple chapters, I should say. But primarily, this is a letter over doctrine. This is a letter over wrong doctrine that was being accepted as right doctrine in the church. And Paul's like, we can't have this. So the Galatian Christians, as has already, I think, been made clear, have lost their senses. They have lost the gospel. It's at best been confused. So Paul uses these strong words of warning in an attempt to wake them from their stupor, from their sleepwalking. Which now brings us to point number three. Point number one, Paul's astonishment. Point number two, Paul's warning. Point number three, Paul's plea. P-L-E-A. Paul's plea. And this will be verses 12 through 20. So this will be the rest of, of our time under the heading of Paul's plea. So Paul writes in verse 12, you can put your eyes there. Brothers, I entreat you, brothers and sisters, he's writing to the churches. I entreat you, become as I am, for, because I also have become as you are. Right, well, what does that mean? Let's wrestle with that together. Just want to make a note here, too. This is the first imperative of the letter, the first command, the first I implore you kind of thing that happens in the whole letter. So we're three and a half chapters in, and we get the first imperative. Become like me, because I have become like you. So remember, we read Philippians 3 for a reason. Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Paul is a Jew, ethnically. He's a Jew by birth of the tribe of Benjamin. His righteousness, according to the law, was unparalleled. He has the audacity to say that his righteousness, according to the law, he was blameless. I mean, and part of me wants to, like, fact check that. But then it's just like the point is still made. He's like, there's nobody that was crushing it more than I was in Judaism. Nobody. 
was a rock star, man. I was up and coming. It's a big deal. I'm a Jew. And I was keeping the law to a level that would be called blameless. But then what did Paul do? Paul forsook all that. He left all of that. Why? He left all of that. He forsook righteousness by the law for the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ Jesus. He says it's better. The righteousness that comes by faith in Christ is better. So Paul, a Jew born under the law, born under the Mosaic covenant, says, I have made myself essentially like you, like a Gentile. I have made myself like a person not under the law. Because I know that my righteousness doesn't come from the law. My righteousness comes from Jesus Christ through faith. So become like me. I have every reason to claim the law and righteousness by the law, but I have made myself like a Gentile. Now you, because you really are one, you're not a Jew, become like me. Become like a person who understands that his or her righteousness is found outside of himself in Jesus, not by works of the law. That's my exposition of verse 12. You have it in front of you. So now Paul's going to move on. Forsake your own righteousness. Pursue the true righteousness that can be found in Christ by faith. But now, you did me no wrong. The very end there of verse 12. And he goes on to say that he had a bodily ailment. You know, verse 13, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. He was literally struggling with a weakness of the flesh. It's just generally stated. We don't know what it is, and I think it's kind of God that we don't know what it is. And I don't understand, just very quickly, when he says down later on in verse 15 that they would have gouged out their own eyes, I don't think that we should understand that that necessarily means it was a vision problem. That's an expression. Gouging out your own eyes is an expression. You would have done anything for me. So it's some physical malady that is affecting Paul's life. We see glimpses of this in other letters, especially 2 Corinthians 12. We understand he has a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what that is. Maybe it's the same thing. Paul knew what it was like to suffer. And so he had a physical problem that facilitated somehow the preaching of the gospel to the Galatians. Maybe Paul had other plans. He had other travel plans on his missionary journey. But because he was ill, he had to stay where he was. And hey, guess what? Churches were planted. It's because God doesn't make mistakes. It's because God doesn't deal in hypotheticals. So Paul preached the gospel to these people, and even though he had this physical condition that was a burden to them, I mean, you can see that in verse 14, and though my condition was a trial to you, it was hard for you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel, a messenger of God. You received me as Christ himself, joyfully. And this is significant because, as we're going to see in other, in other letters of Paul, and this could even be happening here in Galatia, Paul's opponents often prop themselves up as these super apostles with more authority than he has. And one of the things that they would point to regularly is Paul's apparent weakness. He's weak in the flesh. He's not great oratorically. He's not full of all this wisdom, whatever. We are more impressive. God clearly favors us. But it's significant that the Galatians, in the face of Paul's weakness, believed the gospel. So then the question, verse 15 what then has become of the blessing you felt? What has happened? You believed the gospel when I preached it to you. You received me as a messenger, an angel of God. You received me as Christ himself with joy. What has happened? And then he says, 
For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. You would have done anything for me. And now, verse 16, have I become your enemy? Have I become your enemy? You loved me before. You received me before. Have I become your enemy now because I'm telling you the truth? What is happening? What's going on in your minds? He told them the truth before and they received him and the gospel with joy. And now these Galatian Christians are running after other false teachers. And they're running after and are enamored with other false teaching. Now you can put your eyes on verse 17. Paul begins to talk about those false teachers. They make much of you. They flatter you. They pursue you, but for no good purpose. Their purposes are not good. They're not righteous. He goes on to say they want to shut you out. That would mainly mean they want to shut you off from me in order that you may make much of them. So they want to separate you from me and from the teaching that I gave you, the gospel I preached to you, so that you would then pursue them and follow them. That's what they want to do. And their motivations are not good. In verse 18, Paul acknowledges that it's good for there to be zeal. It's good for there to be pursuit, as long as it's for a good purpose. And he says that's true all the time, not just when he's there, but he wants them to have zeal and he wants them to pursue what? Not necessarily just him, but the teaching, the gospel that's true. It's good to have zeal. It's good to pursue. It's good to make much of even a teacher of the word for a good purpose. It would be good for the Galatian Christians to, on the one hand, make much of Paul, but mainly to make much of his gospel. Whether I am with you or not, he says, it would be good that you would be zealous and pursue righteousness and the gospel of Christ. But then in verse 19, we see Again, he's going to give them a final word of affection and concern. He calls them his little children. He says that he is in anguish over them, the anguish of childbirth. He's concerned that they've miscarried. On the one, I'm serious. He's concerned that they have miscarried and have not been born. I'm in anguish, wanting to see Christ formed in you. I want to see you grow in the faith, but here you are reverting back to false religion. Verse 20, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. I want to be there to teach you and plead with you and pray with you, debate with you. For I am perplexed about you. It's a word of great consternation. He's worried. Modern vernacular, I'm, I'm warped out of my frame here. I'm concerned for you. And for what I'm hearing and for what you're believing and for the fact that you're denying the grace of Christ and turning to the law. And so, friends, I, I want to draw this to a close by considering more what it is that Paul is worried about. Namely, the, the compromise of the gospel, the denial of the gospel is what he's worried about. And I want to bring that into even our own context here at CBC and into our own context as American evangelicals, American Protestant Christians. And so I mentioned this in the introduction. Sometimes when I or another pastor or teacher, preacher, writer guy starts to speak about the gospel of faith alone, by the grace of God alone in Christ alone, 
and you, you let that rip, and you don't qualify that. We are saved completely by the grace of God, completely by faith, completely by Christ. When you start to talk in those terms, some people get nervous about that. What I mean is not that they would fundamentally disagree with that at all, but there's something in them that they're like, they're wanting, okay, yeah, but, but, yeah, but. You're telling me we're saved completely by faith in Christ, but there's this other, you got to say more, man. you got to qualify that lest people misunderstand. That's the knee-jerk response of many. Because we can't just tell people, we can't just tell people that they're saved by faith in Jesus. That's going to produce problems. You need to qualify that somehow. On the surface of it, sometimes the objection is made in these terms. There will be references to like a hyper-grace movement to where it's an overemphasis of grace. And we've talked about this before. That's really a, a wrong way to identify this. In that kind of lawless, antinomian movement, the problem is not an overemphasis of grace. A problem is a misunderstanding of what grace is. And it's a problem in terms of a misunderstanding of what sin is. Because people are, in those contexts, are dismissing the sinfulness of sin. Well, it's okay. We're just, we're broken. You know, we're messy. It's fine. Just sin. God's good with you. That's, that's not what we say here. It's not biblical. But in that movement, that's what's often. So it's a denial of the sinfulness of sin. But then also, it's a misunderstanding of grace because grace is not dismissing sin. Grace is not overlooking sin. Grace is not calling something that's wrong right. Grace is a way of dealing with real wrong. And so you've got to call sin, sin, and you've got to call sin wicked for grace to mean anything. Right? So it's not an overemphasis of grace so much. That's the problem. I think, as I've reflected on this, I think what people really are objecting to, yeah, bro, we're saved by faith in Jesus, but give us something, come on, qualify it. The real objection is actually the faith alone piece. The real objection is over sola fide, faith alone. I'm just going to reason with you for a moment. I'm doing, I'm, I'm even saying these things, friends, because we, in our own context, we want to defend the gospel. We don't ever want to deny the grace of Christ and turn to anything else. And so, you'll hear people say things like this. Well, you can't just tell people they're justified completely through faith in Jesus because it will produce lawlessness. Or to put it in a different way, if you tell people they're justified completely by faith in Jesus, apart from anything they do, they're going to take you up on it and live however they want to. It's a common objection. And friend, I would, I would say this humbly and with all my heart. When you start to make that objection... You have left Christianity and entered into rationalism. You have left Christianity and entered into rationalism and human philosophy. That is a conclusion that is based on human reason. It's not a conclusion that the scripture draws at all. Because what does the scripture do? The scripture tells us at the same time when it talks about believers and the gospel justified by faith alone in Christ alone, apart from any works that you would ever do. And at the same time, good works will be present in the life of the Christian. Full stop. That's what the scripture says. But it does not then make that ridiculous conclusion that we make, like if you tell people it's by faith alone, then they're not going to do good works. Scripture doesn't go there. 
at the human level, here's how the thinking goes, right? People have to have, it's, it's like this, people have to have some skin in the game. People have to have some skin in the game when it comes to holiness. People have to have some skin in the game when it comes to good works and obedience. And if they're told that God is good with them and that they are good with God completely through faith in Christ, they won't be motivated. They won't be motivated for holiness. They won't be motivated for good works. They'll just sit on their haunches and they won't do anything. If you tell them that they are justified now and finally saved by faith in Christ alone. The reason that the scripture doesn't go there is because there is a biblical understanding of the gospel and conversion that are absolutely essential in order for this to work and make sense. When people make the objection that we've been considering, it's because there is a misunderstanding of the gospel itself and a misunderstanding of how people are converted. Primarily in a couple of ways, I want us to consider how that's true. People have misunderstood the gospel and they have misunderstood conversion in a couple of ways. One, the gospel is usually misunderstood at the level of the finished work of Christ. What did he do? We're very quick to talk about atonement. We're very quick, oftentimes even talk about the resurrection, all in good ways. I've said this before. That's why I'm going to keep beating this drum. One of the ways that we sometimes can rob Christ of the glory that he's due and we can kind of gut the gospel is by forsaking and neglecting to talk about his active obedience in fulfilling the law. When we understand that, yes, perfect righteousness is required, perfect fulfillment of the law is required, and Jesus did that for you, that changes the game in how you understand the gospel. Any work that I'm ever required to do, Jesus has done it in my place, and it's mine by faith. And so what is there left for me to do? That he, because the thinking in one sense, no, people would never admit this, when you start to want to weave your works into the equation and the fabric of salvation, the implication is there's something left to be done. And the gospel says, it's finished. Jesus said, it's finished. Full atonement, perfect righteousness, it's done to be received by faith. So that's a part of how the gospel, I think, is misunderstood. There's no room for works of ours in that gospel message. That's what makes it so amazing. We have a very heightened sense of this at conversion, don't we? For those in the room who have become Christians, you know that really well right away. Like, you know. It's like, man, I, I am a rebel and a sinner. I am worthless, man. And I have come to faith now, and you're telling me that I'm counted righteous? It's shocking. It's joyful. You're like, this is too good to be true, but it's true. And we know that we didn't do anything. We know that we didn't do anything to deserve it. We know that God did that. And so then what's ironic, and it just speaks to our nature, is that once we are converted and we get into the Christian life and we are being sanctified by the Spirit of God, we then start to look for things that we can do. We turn the gospel and the Christian life into something that we must do rather than fundamentally and primarily understanding it Excuse me, to be something that God does. And that God has done. But then the other misunderstanding that I've alluded to already is with respect to conversion. And this is, this is cool. Ron and I were, were talking and, and thinking about this some the other night in the elders meeting. Uh, when you think about what, what is it that saves or 
more particularly who. It's really not true to say that even faith saves. We've talked about that a lot in this church. You're not saved by faith. You're saved by the object of your faith, namely Jesus. But then if you really want to get down underneath all of that, it's God saves. God saves in salvation. God does this. And so there's a fundamental misunderstanding of that reality. That, oh, God is the one who produced the conversion, who gave the faith in the first place, and now that same God is going to work in and through me by his spirit, and he is going to work through me so that I might work out my salvation with fear and trembling. His work in me enables my working. His grace to me facilitates my striving for holiness. And anything that ever happens along those lines, sanctification, I don't get the credit. God gets the credit. Because God is the one who's ultimately done it. Even as I work and apply the means. So I'm going to use some theological terms now in these last few moments, and I think it's worth doing because I, I care as your pastor that we would be well-informed as a congregation and that when you read things and see things and hear things, your antennas would go up. The kinds of objections that we've been considering to the gospel of faith alone only make sense if you believe that human beings save themselves with God's help. They only make sense if you believe that human beings save themselves with God's help. So in particular, in our context, those objections, if you don't make salvation hang in the balance with respect to holiness and obedience, if you don't put salvation in the balance, brother, with respect to personal holiness and righteousness, people aren't going to care. That kind of thinking is Pelagian at its heart. That kind of thinking is Pelagian or even semi-Pelagian at its heart, and I'm going to explain what I mean. There was a man named Pelagius who lived in the 4th, 5th century. He was a contemporary of Augustine, St. Augustine. And this man taught, in brief, that nothing fundamentally changed about the human nature when Adam and Eve sinned against God. He taught that human beings are free and that we are born into a morally neutral place where we have the power in and of ourselves to choose good or evil. We can choose God or not. He was condemned as a false teacher, rightly. Augustine was a contemporary of his who contended with him vehemently that no, human nature fundamentally changed when Adam and Eve sinned and we were plunged into ruin and now we are unwilling and unable to do anything about our spiritual deadness and so God must be the one to save. Which to which we say, Amen, brother. Amen, brother. That's right. You know is what you know even in your own experience that that's right. Certainly we know from Scripture that that's right. But this kind of Pelagian theology that men can just make decisions of their own power, at least in measure, men can do it, is rampant in the American church. It has been for 200 plus years. The movement, I've, I've kind of railed about this before, but the movement known as the Second Great Awakening was anything but that. It was a Pelagian movement of moral reform. It was not conversion. It wasn't gospel-driven. And so that kind of theology has permeated the water and the air. It's polluted. And so a lot of us, as we've grown up in the American church, have just kind of swam in that water and breathed that air, and we've been inoculated to this stuff. Plus, it's very American, you know? 
I say this on the 4th of July weekend. I love my country. I'm thankful. We've got a brother-in-law who serves in the military. I love him. I'm looking at other people who have served or are serving, and I'm thankful. I'm grateful to be meeting here in freedom. And at the same time, America is a poor companion of Jesus Christ when it comes to gospel ministry. They are not good partners. And so, this kind of, you can do it. You can contribute. It's very American. It's not biblical. And so, my concern is that we would understand rightly that Jesus has accomplished all of the works of salvation and that God is the one who saves. And then when you think that way and believe that way, these objections go away. Because we understand that Jesus has bought us and secured us and accomplished righteousness for us. God has converted us. God will keep us. God will save us. He will sanctify us. Certainly we preach and we instruct and we plead and we correct and we gather like this and sit under the word and we partake of the table and we enjoy the fellowship of the saints because those are the means that God has given us and God is the one who drives it. So when we have that finished work of Jesus and the reality that God saves in view, we start to rightly understand the role of faith. Because I know for myself, I'm just going to be autobiographical here. If you had asked me, I don't know, just even a few years ago, a number of years ago, ten years ago, certainly maybe even five years ago, if you had asked me about the role of faith in justification, I could have answered that very well. But if you had asked me about the role of faith in sanctification, I would have been like, I don't know. Would have had to think about that. What I'm getting at, friends, is what we have considered together before, that we never in the Christian life move beyond the gospel. We never move beyond faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, ever. Because we're tempted when we think in these terms, kind of like I would have found myself doing this, even you know, just a handful of years ago maybe. I would have had a notion that the gospel existed kind of at this point in time, and I entered the faith through that, and then it's kind of now back here as I'm pursuing my growth in the faith, and I'm pursuing this thing called the Christian life. And yeah, the gospel always matters because it was the entry point, but I'm kind of concerned with other stuff right now. But biblically, we know, I mean, Paul says it in Galatians 2.20, we've already considered it, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Everything is about that. Why? Why is the Christian life fundamentally about faith? When we're thinking in right terms, we realize that Our faith is not what saves, right? It's the vehicle. Jesus, the object of our faith, saves. But then faith, biblically defined, is a posture of trusting and resting and believing and depending upon the promises of God in Christ as the ground of my standing before Him. And that posture is the lifeblood of the Christian life. That's the foundation of the Christian life. Everything flows out of that and is built on that. And when we talk about faith and repentance, I think it's important that we understand that repentance assumes faith. So repentance and faith are just kind of two sides of the same coin, right? Because when you talk about repentance, what does that require? It requires you believing God about who he is. It requires you believing God about what he says you are. 
It requires you believing God about what he defines sin to be. It requires you believing God about the gospel and how you would be reconciled to him. Thus, I find myself turning from my sin and my righteousness to God in faith because I believe God. You don't repent without faith. In that sense, faith includes repentance. Friends, I'm landing the plane. Faith, friends, too, is so primary and fundamental because it's an outside-in reality. I'm looking outside of myself in order to save what's wrong in me. I'm looking outside of myself to Jesus for righteousness. This is what Martin Luther talked about so much, his crisis of the soul. Righteousness can't be found in me. It's got to be found outside of me. And so I've got to look to Christ for that. And then this is how I live. I live by faith in the Son of God. It's the lifeblood of my Christian life. I work from the position of knowing that I know that I know that God is good with me, not because of me, but because of Christ. And then I'm motivated by love and by joy and by gratitude, by a passion for the glory of God that I didn't care anything about before, and now I do. And I'm motivated by those things to be holy, and I'm motivated by those things to obey, and I'm motivated by those things to live a life of righteousness. And so do you see how the gospel of Justification by faith alone in Christ alone is in no way contradictory to living a holy life. It fuels a holy life. It doesn't contradict, it fuels a holy life. And for people to object to that demonstrates a misunderstanding. And so when we live together as a church, we can say, I live by faith in the promises of God that have been fulfilled in the Son of God, and applied by the Spirit of God, all to the praise and the glory of God. And now let's live holy lives together for the praise and the fame of His name. Amen. Let's pray.